Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Welcome to the Library of Mistakes podcast. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. The idea of the library is to help us all learn from these mistakes and stop making them so often. There are also now libraries of mistakes in Lausanne, in Switzerland and in Pune, in India. Visit librarymistakes.com to find out more. The library is owned by Didasco, a financial educational charity based in Scotland, which also runs an online course called Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets, and its in-person variety, which we hold in London twice a year, called A Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more about the courses, see the link to Didasco in the podcast show notes. I'm delighted that today we're speaking with Philip Auger. After a long, distinguished career in finance, Philip is the author of three books, The Death of Gentlemanly Capitalism, The Bank That Lived a Little, the history, recent history of Barclays, and his new book, uh, co-authored with Keely Winston, Agent Twister, The Life of John Stonehouse. Philip, over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Russell. Uh, it's great to be back in Edinburgh. Um, Worked here for a number of years, always love, always love visiting, seeing old, seeing old friends. And it's particularly nice to be here in the, in the, in the Library of Mistakes. The, the new premises are amazing. It's such a good idea. It's a very empathetic space. Um, looking round, there are so many books I actually want to read and quite a lot of books I wish I'd written. There's some really lovely works here. So um, thank, you for the, thank, you, thank you for the invitation. Let's start, I want to, actually I want to take us back, we're going to spend a bit of the time in 1974, and it's a year which has some similarities with the year that we're in now. On the morning of November the 20th, John Stonehouse, British MP, went for lunch with some people from the First National Bank of Miami to arrange a business deal between one of his companies and the bank. After that, Mr. Stonehouse came back to the Fountain Blue, agreed to meet for dinner, went through the beach club, and was quickly on the hotel's private beach. And that is the last time that anyone saw John Stonehouse alive. The BBC reporter said that John Stonehouse was a, a Labour MP, which indeed he was in, in, 1970, in 1974. But actually, he was a, a quite a significant figure in British politics in the 1960s. He was tall, charismatic, had the gift of the gab, had a supportive, attractive wife. They were the perfect political couple. Stonehouse was a, a, a quick supporter of Harold Wilson when Wilson became uh, leader of the Labour Party and eventually prime minister. Stonehouse was MP for Walsall North in the West Midlands. And when Labour won the 1964 election, he rewarded some of his supporters, as they do, the politicians, with, with ministerial posts. Stonehouse was never actually in the cabinet, but as the 60s wore on, he was promoted to more and more senior ministerial positions. Minister of Aviation, Minister of Technology, Minister of Telecoms, and eventually he became Britain's Postmaster General, an influential position, particularly in the 60s, when people still sent a lot of letters. 
He was regularly tipped in the 60s as a future prime minister. The chat shows loved him. His David Frost program, they liked him a lot. He was, he was all over the place, a very charismatic, interesting, high-potential figure. And so right through to 69, he was a man on the up. And then this happened. 1969. Stonehouse is unexpectedly summoned to number 10. He thinks that a reshuffle is in the offering and that he might be about to receive some good news. He fantasises that he's about to get offered a big job at the Board of Trade and is feeling positive when at 11.30am he knocks on the big black door. He makes for the cabinet room but is redirected upstairs to one of the staterooms. He enters to find Harold Wilson standing there alongside his private secretary, Michael Halls. You know Michael, don't you? says Wilson. Stonehouse nods and his eyes move beyond Halls to another man. This is Elwell of counterintelligence, says Wilson. Stonehouse's blood runs cold. Wilson carries on. A Czech intelligence officer has defected to America and named you as an informer to the Czech Secret Service. And it's true. Stonehouse, while still a minister, had been working for the Czech Secret Service. He'd been feeding them information. There'd been drops of money in his car left in secret places. He's photographed by the Czech Secret Service meeting his handler in restaurants. They try and get a tape recording of one of the discussions, but it's a noisy restaurant and it doesn't work very well. And it's a really nasty position for Stonehouse to be in. So what happens then is that um, Elwell interviews him. He interviews him several times. It's not the, the bare-lit white room and the, and the bare light bulb hanging down and there's nothing like that. It's all very gentlemanly in the, in the recesses of the RAC club on Pall Mall. <laughs> now Stonehouse can talk his way out of anything and of course he manages to convince Elwell that there's absolutely nothing in, this, nothing in the story. Elwell is probably quite relieved because it would have been embarrassing for the security services if they hadn't noticed that there was an informant at the heart of government. And Wilson's pretty relieved as well because this is the era of the Cold War. It's not long since there'd been the Bay of Pigs episode when the world really thought that it was on on the brink of nuclear breakdown. Czechoslovakia is really a satellite state of the Soviet Union. Their security service, it's thought, reports straight in to the KGB. Wilson himself it was often smeared, unfairly, I think, as a, a, as a communist sympathiser. In 1963, there'd been a scandal in British politics, the Profumo affair. And the suspicion was that Profumo was working in a circle that identified with Soviet secret agents. Wilson had pressed Prime Minister Harold Macmillan on this matter and uh, Wilson had made a really big thing of it. He'd shown himself to be determined to root out espionage at the heart of government. 
it would have been devastating to Wilson if one of his protégés had turned out to be a Soviet spy. So when the word comes back from Elwell that you know, we've met, I've met Stonehouse at the RAC, it seems to be okay. <laughs> Wilson was rather relieved about this and um, was able to say, okay, there'll be no more investigations. And Stonehouse was probably even more relieved. <laughs> so they carry on. 69 rolls over into 1970. There's a, gen a general election which, which Wilson loses and Edward Heath becomes Conservative Prime Minister. Now, Wilson was a very canny man. He, although he was certainly relieved and probably didn't believe that Stonehouse had, be, had been spying, he decided by this time that Stonehouse wasn't really trustworthy. No smoke without fire might have been a way he looked at it. Stonehouse hadn't performed particularly well as a minister. He'd been, he was very good at leaking to the press. He was very good at putting his own story across. He was very, very good at undermining colleagues. But Wilson really decided that, although he'd been a big supporter of Stonehouse in the 60s, if he, Harold Wilson, ever formed another government, Stonehouse wouldn't be part of it. And he told Stonehouse so. So this rising star of the 1960s, this Labour Party icon, this darling of the popular press, his political career, at least at the highest level, is over. He's still MP for Walsall North, but he's not going to be a high flyer again. He's not going to be a minister, at least not, while Harold Wilson is prime minister. Now, that's a, that's a problem for Stonehouse in, a, in, in lots of ways. The Czech connection has ended by now. He's no longer re receiving wads of notes under the front seat of his car. That, that connection is finished. But he's a man with a, a taste for expensive living. He's, a, he's got an expensive lifestyle. He loses his minister's salary. He just goes down, back down to a backbencher's salary. And he needs to do something to bring in money. But he knows he's a confident kind of guy. He's got the gift of the gab. I'll start a business, he says. He knows nothing about business, but I'll start a business. And he goes into the import-export business. While he was a minister, he'd done a, a lot of work promoting British exports around the world. People said he was a very good salesman. He got some great contacts. Um, the high-flying electronics companies of the day, some of you will remember Plessy and Raykel and GEC. Stonehouse knew all of these companies. He knew the chief executives. And he was able to develop a reasonable little business in import-export to supplement his parliamentary pay and to fund the kind of lifestyle that he, that he enjoyed. He liked wine. He actually founded a wine business called Connoisseurs of Claret. Like many people, he found that it was more fun drinking wine than trying to make money from it. But uh, that was one of his portfolio of businesses. And it was, it was going okay. I mean, it, he wasn't making a fortune, but he was, it was quietly supplementing his living. Then in 1972, he made what proved to be um, a serious mistake. He founded a bank. It started out as a fairly altruistic affair. It was to help um, Bangladesh citizens repatriate money back to Bangladesh. But that quickly fell by the wayside. And it, it morphed into being a commercial venture. And towards the end of 1972, it was decided to have a, a, an, 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 an initial share offering to members of the public to get this bank going. 
adverts were put in the in all the big papers. Um, subscribe to this bank, you know, special special terms for you if you do. Stonehouse went on a roadshow around the country with some of his management to appeal for funds. And the idea was that they would raise about a million pounds. That's about 10 million pounds today. It wasn't going to be a big bank. It was going to be a, a, a kind of a niche operation. And uh, it would have made a Stonehouse hoped some money and perhaps even his fortune if eventually they were able to sell it. Always a man for publicity, John Stonehouse. He gave lots of interviews. We're going to raise a million pounds. It's all going very, very well. We're well on track here. It's going to go really well. It's going to be terrific. He had a bit of a hiccup when the Sunday Times rather took against him and said that actually this bank isn't all, all, all that it looks to be and the, the, the commissions that they're offering look a bit out of line and they say they've got the Bank of England support and they haven't really... Stonehouse rebutted this very strongly. But the Sunday Times article and a slight change in the business mood meant that when it came to tot up the numbers, they hadn't got the million pounds at all. They'd got about a third of that. And OK, at that point, many people would have said, look, OK, we tried to get a bank away. The economy was turning down. The Sunday Times were unhelpful. We couldn't do it. It wouldn't have been a terrible thing. It might have damaged his reputation in the city. It might have made it difficult for him to form a new business. But John Stonehills wasn't like that. He wasn't a man to admit failure. He wasn't a man to admit defeat. And he wasn't a man to obey the rules. What happened was that he, his business associates and some members of his family subscribed for the shares and they, didn't, they subscribed for the shares secretly. And they gave the impression that not 300,000 had been, had been raised, but over 600,000 had been raised. That would have been enough to get the share issue away, and that's, and that's what was announced. The lending, the money all came from the bank itself. And so what has happened at this moment, and this was the crucial moment in the whole Stonehouse story, really just to salv salvage his pride, just to save face, he had illegally lent money to directors of the company, to business associates, in breach of the Companies Act and in breach of the company's own Articles of Association. Now, it wasn't ever intended to be a long-term thing. The idea was that the bank would get going and would very quickly be able to trade its way out of trouble. These illegal loans would be quickly paid off, and no one would ever find out about it. So that was the idea. And the circumstances of the time, 1972, 1973, these were the years when Anthony Barber was Chancellor of the Exchequer. What was going on was the so-called Barber boom, Conservative Chancellor Anthony Barber decided that the way to get the, and some of this might sound familiar, <laughs> the way to get the British economy out of trouble was to relax credit, to stimulate growth, to get the economy booming. And so the Barber boom happens. And for a while, it's reasonably successful. But then extraneous events kick in. There's an oil crisis in the Middle East. 
there's the Yom Kippur Arab-Israeli war. The oil price shoots up, inflation goes through the roof, sterling collapses, there's a banking crisis. The property bubble, which had been building like crazy, house prices shooting through the roof, there are cranes in every city centre, all of that suddenly collapses. And for John Stonehouse's little bank, there is no way at all of trading their way out of trouble. So, it's tricky now. They're coming up to the first annual audit. The bank's auditors are going to be in the building pretty soon. And although they generally missed a few obvious danger signals in their first audit, this time round, the signals are flashing so red that John Stonehouse worries that they will discover the illegal share issue and the illegal bank loans. So what do you do about it if you're John Stonehouse? It's, we're in January 74 now. The stock market has just done that on the back of the oil crisis and the, the, the banking crisis and the, the deflating of the, of the barber, barber boom. Stonehouse thinks, OK, the sums involved are still not, not out of hand. What we'll do here, stock market is at a seven-year low. What we'll do is we'll use some of the bank's money to have a punt in the market. Share prices will probably double. We'll get all our money back. It'll all be cleared up by the time the auditors come in and, and everything will be fine. Ah, yeah, good idea, good idea. And actually, for a few weeks, it works really quite well. It works really quite well. There is... Uh, the market does recover, and there's a point really where he's, you know, he's, he probably has made quite a bit of that money back. And there's a general election in February, February, February 1974. And at this general election, um, the, the, the Labour MP, John Stonehouse, really needs the Conservative government to be. Um, to, 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 to continue, and this will mean that the stock, stock market rally will continue, as these, as these things do, and, uh, and, and everything will be okay. Of course, that's not what happened at all. Unexpectedly, um, Harold Wilson gets back, into, gets back into power, the stock market plunges, and Stonehouse is really, at this time, in deep, deep trouble. His auditors are in the building, he can't cover up the first fraud, and he now owes his brokers a serious amount of money. It's time for Plan B. Now, Plan B starts, and I'll just read something more from um, the book. Plan B starts in July 1974. Friday, the 12th of July, 1974, is a typical morning in the medical records office at the Manor Hospital in Walsall. That's John Stonehouse's constituency. I can see some of you are wondering where this is going. <laughs> Rows of medical secretaries work their way through piles of folders, typing up the doctor's notes, occasionally drawing a sombre black cross when a file needs to be closed. Derek Perks, a patient services officer, one of the few men in the room, is called to the phone. John Stonehouse MP wants him. Stonehouse says that he has funds available to be distributed to young widows in the area and he's interested in obtaining the identities of males in their 40s 
who have died in the hospital in recent months. John Stonehouse, as it happens, is in his 40s. <laughs> so he, Derek Perps, rootles away and he gives, the, gives John Stonehouse the names and addresses of five men of around the right age who recently died. Stonehouse looks them up, finds out where, where the widows live and knocks on the door. Hello, I'm your MP, John Stonehouse. I'm doing a survey. I've got some funds available for young widows. Could we come in? He engages them in conversation, finds out a little bit about the recently deceased man who's actually died sometimes just a few weeks before. And the crucial piece of information he needs to establish is, did your late husband um, have a passport? So he doesn't ask that directly. He, he does it quite cleverly. So... Uh, did you and Joe ever go abroad? Oh, no, we've never been out of the West Midlands. You'll do nicely. So off he goes, and uh, he's a, he establishes the identity of two likely-looking recently deceased males. He sends off for uh, death certificates and birth certificates just to do everything properly. The birth certificates arrive. Arrives. He takes them down to the passport office, fills in the passport application forms, pops into a backstreet photographer in Victoria, slightly changes his appearance, big glasses, slicks back his hair, puts his colour out of his shirt so he looks completely unlike John Stonehouse, and he secures a passport in the name of a man called Joe Markham. And with that, he's beginning to develop a really interesting proposition. So with the identity of Joe Markham established, he applies for and gets credit cards in Markham's name. He starts to buy some airline tickets in Markham's name. He opens bank accounts in Markham's name in Switzerland and in Australia. And when, come November, it's really obvious his brokers are really pressing him very hard for the money he owes. He owes them over a million pounds in today's money. He has nothing like that. The auditors are circling. They're really asking difficult questions. They've got their lawyers on the job. Stonehouse decides this is the time to arrange a business trip. And so on the 19th of November, he and an associate get on a plane at Heathrow and they fly over to Miami. Stonehouse concocts a story for the benefit of his colleague that a local bank in Miami is interested in taking over Stonehouse's company. It's, it's complete poppycock, frankly. Anyway, they go over there, and the, the associate's really important because he's going to be the witness. They have lunch at the First National Bank of Miami. The lunch clearly goes nowhere. The bank aren't interested in Stonehouse's business. They go back to the hotel. Stonehouse tells the business associate that he's going to go for a swim. The business associate has a nap in his room. Stonehouse goes down to the beach club, leaves his clothes with the beach club attendant, changes into his swimming trunks, and walks down to the sea. But he doesn't go into the water. Instead, he doubles back goes to a deserted hotel next door where he's stashed a spare set of clothes, puts those clothes on. In those clothes are the false passport and false credit cards he's going to need. 
and he zigzags across the world, eventually ending up in Australia. And he's a cool customer when he's in Australia. He settles in Melbourne. He rents a flat under the name of Joe Markham. He joins a chess club. He's a jazz lover, so he goes to some jazz concerts. He's regularly becomes quickly, in a matter of weeks, a popular member of that community. But he's missing someone. He's missing someone really badly. It's not his loyal wife, Barbara. It's his secretary and girlfriend, a woman called Sheila Buckley. Buckley isn't in on the act at this point. She's back in London, apparently in the belief that Stonehouse has disappeared. She'll have heard that news clip we heard at the beginning. That was the last time anyone saw him alive. So she's a bit surprised when she's called to the phone in her bedsit to say that there's a, a call for you, and on the line is John Stonehouse. He now starts to he tells her what's going on. And remarkably, the papers are still full of his disappearance. His picture is everywhere. He says, I've got to see you. Let's meet in Copenhagen. So he zips over from Melbourne to Copenhagen. She leaves work early on a Friday afternoon and also turns up in Copenhagen. They spend a weekend together. Sheila goes back to, to work in London. Stonehouse goes back to Melbourne. When Sheila gets back to London, she's invited round for a drink with Stonehouse's wife, the apparently grieving widow. But, uh, and Sheila's in a tricky position because she has just seen, within the last few days, the man who Mrs. Stonehouse believes is now dead, but she, she plays along with it. I mean, anyway, extraordinary thing. So here we have now... Mrs. Stonehouse believing that her husband is dead, girlfriend knowing that he's alive but not allowed to say anything, and Stonehouse having a fairly happy life in Australia. He and the girlfriend start to write letters. Stonehouse um, goes to, has, has a sort of arranges for the letters to be delivered at a, at a hotel he knows. And then this happens. He's been in Melbourne about five weeks now. Stonehouse collects his post as planned and makes his way back across Fitzroy Street, dodging traffic and trams, to the station opposite. He buys his ticket and gets on to the waiting train. Then they pounce. Three plainclothes officers pull Stonehouse back off the train and onto the platform. It's all so fast, he has no idea who they are or what is happening. The detective sergeant looks him in the eye. Are you Joseph Arthur Markham? He asks. No, replies John Stonehouse. <laughs> so, um, that's, uh, it's, all, it's all out there. I mean, within, within hours, um, the British media are all over the place. There's a, an Ashes cricket match going on, so the cricket correspondents rush down from uh, wherever the game is, rush down to Melbourne. They're all on the case. The tabloids fly their people over, and um, it's, it's the big story of, of January. Now, Stonehouse needs to get somewhere to hide. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's arrested, he's charged, um, Buckley, Sheila has flown over to Australia by this time. She's charged as well. 
But uh, Stonehouse needs to find um, somewhere to hide. And Barbara comes over to see him. Barbara is an absolute saint in all this. She, she forgives him all this. Um, she, she flies over to be by his side. They need, they need to find somewhere to hide. And so they stay with um, an old school friend of Stonehouse's um, who lives a few miles outside Melbourne in the middle of um, a nature reserve. To my absolute amazement, um, before this event this evening, um, a member of the audience comes up to me and it turns out that the person with whom John Stonehouse was staying was actually a close relative of, 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 of these people here. So that is a, a remarkable coincidence. They're there for five days. They have, um, and they're, they're slowly getting everything together, John Stonehouse and Barbara. They're talking to... They're, they're, they're trying to work things out. He's trying to explain himself. They've hidden from the press. And then all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door, and it's the Daily Mail. And once again, they are all over the papers. Eventually, um, Stonehouse is um, extradited back to the UK. So is Sheila. And they eventually stand trial accused of, uh, of various forms of insurance fraud and theft. In their rush to get Stonehouse out of Australia, the British authorities make one mistake, which is that they don't really charge him with the full range of offences that they could have done. Under extradition law at the time, you can only be charged with the offences that, that were mentioned in the extradition papers. And it, they went for some quite minor offences. Nonetheless, um, Stonehouse is sentenced to seven years. Sheila is sentenced to two years uh, suspended sentence. They are both acquitted of the conspiracy charge. Stonehouse goes to prison, um, has a couple of heart attacks, survive, survives them, those for a while. And that really might have been the end of the whole matter, except that in, in 1978, um, Wilson has retired by this time, and the new Prime Minister is a man called James Callaghan, the Labour Prime Minister. He has a majority of only, of, of, of only three seats, and that's only achieved by working in a, in, in a, in a pact with the Liberal Party. It's the days of the Lib Lab Pact, it was called. And the Conservative leader by this time is Margaret Thatcher. And Thatcher's backbenchers really want to try and destabilise the government. And they hit on the idea of, let's resurrect this Stonehouse was a spy story. They sent one of the, one of the, one of the MPs, goes over, to, um, goes over to the United States and interviews the Czech defector who'd first named Stonehouse. He gets a six-hour tape recording, brings it back to London, sends it to Prime Minister James Callaghan. Callaghan immediately sees the political danger. Here we are with a, a minority government in power only thanks to the support of the Liberal Party. We're losing by-elections right, left and centre. If it turns out that a Labour minister in recent history had been spying for a satellite state of the, of, of the Soviet Union, we are going to be ruined. So what should he... So the first thing he does, well, let me, let's talk to Harold Wilson about it. Let's talk to my predecessor. So he calls in Wilson. By this time, Wilson, Wilson has, 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 has retired. 
And Wilson, of course, Wilson had, had been told about this in 1969. He'd had Stonehouse into number 10. He had put Elwell onto the case. He'd actually eventually told the House of Commons that, that he had, there was no evidence of the espionage stories. He was briefed on it again in 1975 and again in 1977. Anyway, Callaghan gets him in and says, you know, we've had this, we've, we've had this story that Stonehouse is, is, is a spy. Do, do you know anything about it, Harold? Wilson says, well, I don't recall ever seeing Stonehouse about this matter. And uh, kind of shrugs his shoulder. Now, by then, um, he, he's, he, he's, he's an older man. He's, his memory is going, let, 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 let's be generous. Anyway, that's, that's kind of eases things a bit for Callaghan. But the Conservative backbenchers are, are really pressing Margaret Thatcher also to raise this. And this is where Callaghan is, is very, very clever. Margaret Thatcher at this time is a relatively new leader of the opposition. She hasn't got her grip over the whole party yet. And she's quite vulnerable. And Callaghan no doubt thinks that it would be quite easy for Thatcher to make a big thing of this. This might be the thing that could bring down the government. So he very cleverly decides to brief her. He calls her into number 10, and he establishes that they're going to have a conversation on what he calls privy council terms. This is a, this is a, a convention where the prime minister um, can brief the leader of the opposition and the conversation will remain confidential. So once he's, got, once he's briefed Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher is actually in the tent as well. She has to tell her backbench MPs that there's really nothing in the story. And it's true, they still don't have enough proof to bring the case to court. The backbenchers agree to call off, their, off the hunt and things carry on. That was 1978. 1979, um, Thatcher wins a general election. She becomes prime minister. The myth, the, the story of the Iron Lady is, 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 is born. Quite early in her premiership, quite a shocking spy scandal breaks. It emerges that a man called Anthony Blunt, who was a, 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 the keeper of the, of the Queen's pictures, but was well up the establishment, it emerges that he had been part of a spy ring and that this had been hushed up by various prime ministers. Thatcher is outraged by this. She stands up in Parliament and denounces this kind of betrayal and says we must be absolutely certain that none of that this kind of thing doesn't ever happen again. So she's a bit embarrassed when the following year the security services sidle up to her and say, you know, we've got a bit more evidence and it looks pretty likely that John Stonehouse was a spy. And she thinks, whoops because she has participated in the cover-up in Callaghan's time. She's been beautifully played by Callaghan, and so she is somehow complicit in the thing. She takes legal advice. She gets the Home Secretary, the Foreign Secretary, the Attorney General to, to look at it. Conveniently, they say, there's, there's not really enough evidence to charge Stonehouse in court, although we're all sure that he was a spy. And much to Thatcher's relief, she therefore is able to say, OK, we'll, we'll let the matter drop. So here we have three prime ministers consecutively who've let Stonehouse off the hook. Wilson, because it would have brought down his government. 
Callaghan because it would have brought down his government, and Thatcher because it would have been very embarrassing for her at a time when her authority over the party wasn't fully established. And the irony of all this is that this is quite soon after the Profumo scandal that I mentioned earlier. Now, Profumo, that scandal effectively brought down the Conservative government of Harold Macmillan in 1974 because of fears that Profumo was a security risk. A government report, a good government report, actually established that he wasn't a security risk at all. Yet the Profumo affair brought down Macmillan. Incredibly, Stonehouse was a security risk, a real one, yet three prime ministers survived his betrayal. Russell, that's about it. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, and unbelievably, you just, you just scraped the surface and some of the more interesting things in your book, so we can now discuss those. I thought one of the, probably the funniest bit was the, uh, the detectives in Melbourne in 1974. They knew they had a, an Englishman. They knew he had a very upper-class accent. They knew he was on the run, so they instantly thought it was Lord Lucan. <laughs> <laughs> and so the way they, they did, and the way, the way they established that it wasn't Lord Lucan, that Lord Lucan, who was a, 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 an English aristocrat, thought to have, thought to have murdered a, a member of his household staff and then vanished in mysterious circumstances... But he had, a, he had a scar, Lord Lucan had a scar on one of his knees. So when they bundled Stonehouse into the police car after they arrested him, they asked him to roll up his trouser leg. <laughs> no scar. Wasn't he, he presumably thought he was back at the Masonic Lodge. <laughs> <laughs> I've never the, established whether, that, whether he was a Mason, actually. I'll look okay. into it. The, uh, and, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, we have to get on to the bank because we are uh, more interested in finance. But he didn't fake his death once, did he? He didn't fake his death once. He didn't, no. Um, he, um, it, this was the second time that he tried it. Um, so I told you about the story in, in the middle of November um, 1974. He'd actually tried it a few weeks before. But when he got there, he kind of ran out of nerve. And he realised that what he ne really needed was a witness to go with him. That's why on the second occasion he persuaded a business associate to go with him. So let's talk about the bank. Uh, you mentioned, I mean, you, there's a regulator who has to decide whether you can be a bank. You need a license. Was it a bank? Did he get a license? And how on earth did he get a license to take so deposits? So you'll have picked up from the little I've said about John Stonehouse that he was a man who, who had a very big contacts book. He was a privy councillor. And so when this idea comes to start a bank, he thinks, well... I want to start a bank. It's only going to be a small one. Who, who, who do I know who might be able to help? I know what. I'll go and see the governor of the Bank of England. <laughs> you do, don't you? <laughs> so he goes into, uh, he goes into uh, the old lady of Threadneedle Street. Governor sees him. He gets a polite hearing. Governor sends it a bit down the line, deputes a senior official to um, look after him. And frankly, the Bank, don't ask, the bank of England don't ask too many questions. The official um, who's put in charge of the Stonehouse affair, when all this fraud emerges, says, well, you know, if ever, you, if, if, if ever a chap in the city in, these, in, in, in the 1970s told a lie, he'd be finished forever. You just assumed they wouldn't do that sort of thing. And so actually... Um, 
Lots of chances were missed to, to pick up this fraud. That was one of them. Was it a bank, though? Did he get the license, or he just called it a bank? He Eventually, they did get the license, yes. They needed a certificate to practice, and that was actually why it was very important that, they, that this share issue was portrayed as being a success, but they did get it in the end from the Department of Trade. It's, it's just an incredible story, because he then dies on television. Is that right? Yeah, there's... <laughs> Um, this, this, is a, this is a sad part of the, of the story. So while in prison, Stone, John Stonehouse has a couple of heart attacks, um, bypass operations. He emerges from prison um, and becomes a novelist, actually. He writes, um, he writes four novels, um, one, under, one under a pseudonym. The novels, he says, draw heavily on his experiences of life and government and business. One of the key novels is actually a spy story about her, and, and it's uncanny the resemblance to the story that I've just told you. He goes on the chat show circuit. He's still very charming, still very entertaining, still a very good-looking man. Barbara divorces him. He marries Sheila, and they start to live happily. They have a son together. Unfortunately, then, he appears on, 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 on television while being interviewed, um, he, gets, he, he collapses suddenly. The screen is blacked out. Uh, is there a doctor in the house? And Stonehouse dies soon after that. That was the end of the story. Have you read any of his novels? And could they be more dramatic than his life? They, they sit proudly on my, on, on my shelves, largely unopened. Um, I wouldn't particularly recommend them for the Library of Mistakes, but... Um, there, I mean, they, 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 were, they were panned by the critics. Um, and uh, I don't think it ever worked, actually, as, as a career. Philip, well, first of all, thanks, everybody here, for coming along tonight. Thank you, everybody, who joined us on YouTube. You didn't see the video. You just heard the audio. You didn't miss much, did you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> there were no slides. There were no films. So it's uh, the audio. If you heard the audio, you heard everything. But most uh, importantly... Another book. There'll be more. I hope there'll be more. Last time we discussed it, you were going to write a different book. So I'm sure you've got other books up there. And uh, I hope you'll come back. But at the minute, this, they say stranger than fiction. This is the strange, you're not going to find a stranger story than this. If you are, I'd like to know. I think the, the only, um, I, I do intend this to be the last book. And my wife, Denise, is also pretty clear that it should be the last <laughs> book. Um, but I would say the, the only thing that could that, I, that would tempt me, I think, to write another one would be, uh, last time I was here, we spoke about Barclays. If Barclays were bid for, then I think that would be quite a good story. And I, I'd, be, I'd be, find it hard pressed to, hard, hard to resist that one. Well, we'll see you back here very soon. <laughs> uh, uh, Philip, thank you very much. Thank, thank, thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply go to libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader, and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks, and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform.